encourage you to open to Luke chapter 11. In your bulletin, it says, uh, verses 27 through 52, um, very ambitiously, we're going to go through uh, actually 12-3 there, um, and everybody now has a sharp intake of breath and says, can we possibly do it? And the question is, I don't know, but we're going to try. The answer is, I don't know, but here we go. So, beginning in verse 27... We're going to read all the way through. So uh, it says, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part in dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. While Jesus was speaking... A Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dining. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe men and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundations of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. 
In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed, shall be proclaimed on the housetops. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, this is your holy and inerrant word, and as we come to it, as the choir has reminded us, Lord, we need to lean into Jesus. We need you to hold us up in this time to teach our hearts uh, so that we might see the things that you would have for us. Uh, Lord, I can't preach this in a way that would penetrate to our hearts Uh, But, Father, you can, and you promise to do that for your people. And so, again, we cling to that promise. We ask that you would be very present by the power of your Spirit now in each one of us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Woes, signs, and true blessedness. Well, if you have been paying close attention uh, to our study of Luke, and I pray that you have, I hope that you have, Uh, then you're going to recognize that this morning that the passage before us is actually just a continuation of what we began two weeks ago. Um, Obviously, you don't have a pastor who can cover 40 verses in a timely manner, though today we're going to take a run at it. Um, And so we had to stop then two weeks ago. Uh, But it is important for us to keep in mind what we saw there, both just for the context And also because really what Jesus is going to do here today is just continue what he was doing there. He's going to address the same people and he's going to address them in the same way. And he's just going to really drive it home more clearly. And so by way of introduction this morning, I simply want to just reset the stage of where we were. I just want to remind you of what we cover because I think it's going to be beneficial as we move forward. And so if you turn back to verse 14, that's where we started two weeks ago. Uh, You remember that Jesus has cast out this demon. It's a demon that caused those that that he had possessed to be mute. Uh, And as a result of this great act that Jesus does, there are those who react as they always do, right? There's always this variety of responses to Jesus. Uh, The first people you see, they were amazed. Uh, They marveled at what Jesus could do. Maybe they even believed in him. Now, it doesn't say that, but we can be sure that some were probably converted by seeing the the power that Jesus had to heal this man. But then, of course, there were the, the other groups, groups that were less convinced about the reality of who Jesus was. And so the first group we said was an antagonistic group. They reject Jesus They question him at every turn, and specifically here, they they accuse him of being able to do these things at the bidding by the power of Satan. Uh, You see that there in verse 15. Now, we said this might be those groups, the Pharisees, the lawyers that we're going to see here in just a little bit, those groups that, that openly reject and oppose Jesus so often in Scripture. Secondly, we also saw the, the group that was just skeptical, right? We, we called them the skeptics. Uh, they were not really willing to outright reject Jesus. They weren't willing to say, hey, uh, we're not going to believe right now. But uh, they also were not willing to, to believe completely in him in that moment, right? Uh, they, they needed more proof. They, they tested Jesus in verse 16 
by way of they wanted him to, to give more signs, to, to show them more things. Now, we said that the temptation is to think uh, that that antagonistic group is somehow worse, or maybe they're in a more dangerous position than the group that's just merely skeptical. But you remember what Jesus says there in verse 23. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, we said that there is no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. We are all, even now, either on his side or we are not. There is no straddling the fence when it comes to him. We are either guarded by the strong man of verse 21, who we uh, identified as Satan, right? Satan who wants to keep those things that he thinks are his. We're either identified with him or we have been redeemed by the stronger man of verse 22. The one who has stormed the gates. The one who has defeated Satan himself. The one, the only one, who can truly set us free. To, to put it one last way, just in connection to, to the catechism question that we've read... We are either in Adam, as Paul would say, our original head, or we are in Jesus, the, the second Adam, the greater Adam. We, by faith, we must look to the king. We must, uh, he must reign in our hearts. We said there in those verses in 24 through 26 that we can't hope... To, to clean ourselves up. And we're going to see that again in this passage today. We can't hope to sit on the throne of our own hearts. Only one can rule there. And it it's Jesus. He is the king. So our only hope in this life, our only hope in the next, is to look to him. Now, that, that gets us somewhat, very quickly, caught up to our passage today. And what Jesus, as we've said, is going to do here is just continue to address these issues. He's, he's going to continue to show the, the folly of these people who, who have come to him, who have seen great signs and wonders, and yet leave without faith. Who, who leave or have great questions or, or who, not, who do not simply believe by the power of what they have seen. And so in verses 29 through 32... Uh, he's going to remind the skeptics how those in the Old Testament, specifically how Gentiles in the Old Testament, how they responded to the figures and to the signs that God had given them, figures and signs that were far inferior to the one, to the person who was standing before them in that moment. Secondly, in verses 37 through 53, He's going to pronounce these woes on the Pharisees and on the lawyers. And he's going to continue to show them how inconsistent, how hypocritical their quote-unquote religious lives really are. Now, in both cases, there's going to be great warnings for you and I as we sit here in 2022. Is that right? Yeah, 2022, even now. We're going to see our, our own proclivity to doubt the sufficiency of what God has revealed to us in his word and through his son. The one that we've seen on Wednesday nights is the image of God, the very image of God in the flesh. 
We're going to see how, how we doubt the truth of what he has done for us over and over and over again. We're also going to see our own tendency to set up our own little man-made religions. We begin to set up our own rules, our own laws, thinking all alone that maybe we're doing this thing right. That, that maybe in ourselves we have a sufficiency to save. And yet Jesus is going to point us back over and over and over again to what really matters. In both cases, the question is, is where does our faith really lie? To put it another way, we might ask, who's really in charge here? Who's the one who is really leading the way? To connect it back to our title, we could say, who is truly blessed? Now, friends, that's the question that I really want us to consider. How can we have true blessedness? Well, let's look at it together. Now, for the sake of our argument, we're going to hold verses 27 and 26, and then 33 through 36. We're going to hold those to the end. And so the first thing that I want you to see in this passage is a superior prophet and an all-sufficient sign. A superior prophet and an all-sufficient sign. You see that there in verses 29 through 32. Let me read verse 29 to you. It says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, we have to pause here for a second, because on the one hand, I think we can all testify to the fact that over the course of our study of Luke, Jesus has given them many, many signs, right? I think I've read this somewhere, and I, I, I feel pretty confident in telling you this, but it may, I may be wrong. Uh, but I think Luke, out of all the gospel writers, he records more of the miraculous things that Jesus does than any of the rest of them. And it makes sense because he's a physician, right? He wants to make sure we see the miraculous nature of the way that Jesus heals these people. But, but my point is, is Jesus doesn't seem to, to have a problem with signs per se, right? So, so what's the point that he's making? Well, what he wants to do here is he wants to draw these people to see the hardness of their own hearts. He, he wants them to recognize that, yes, they have seen sign after sign after sign after sign, but none of it has done any good. None of it has actually penetrated their hearts. Not because the signs were deficient, but because their hearts were black. Their hearts were hard. And so he does it by giving them these sort of, at least to them, what would have been shocking examples. He points them back, not to all of the great stories of faith, of the Jews, of the patriarchs, of the fathers, though he could have done that, he points them back to the faith of Gentiles. He does it first through the prophet Jonah, and I would encourage you to turn there if you want to. Uh, if you get to Amos or Obadiah, you're real close. If you get to Micah, you've gone too far. It's a small book, so it's hard to find. But as you turn there, I would just remind you of how that story concludes. You remember, Jesus, uh, Jonah begins by God calls him. He says, go to the, the Ninevites of all people. Uh, history has lost this. But the Ninevites were the, the worst of people. They were the enemies of the Jews. They were horrible. They did terrible things, terrible things. 
And so, of course, Jonah flees. He doesn't want to go and, and preach repentance to these types of people. Uh, but through God's intervention, through the things that he does that you know so well, Jonah finds himself there in Nineveh proclaiming the mercies of God uh, to these people who, to him, are the worst of sinners. And I want you to see there in chapter 3 and in verse 4 what happens. Jonah speaks. He says, time is coming. God is about to act. And immediately, what do the people do? Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, friends, we can't preach Jonah today because that's not, we don't have time to do that. But as a preacher, it's amazing to me that Jonah walks in there and he says one sentence. One sentence. Forty days. God's going to act. And what do the people do? This is a vast city now, a vast city of people who do not know the God of Israel. A vast city who do not care, have, have been their enemies for the majority of history. They do not like these people. Jonah comes and says the God of Israel is about to act. And what do they do? They repent. And they repent. They don't just say it with their words, but they go out and they put on sackcloth and ashes. They, they go to their, even their animals all the way down the line. They repent. Why? Because maybe, just maybe, this God of Israel will show them mercy. Now, did you catch that? What they're doing here is certainly repenting, but they're also throwing themselves upon the mercy of this God that they don't really know, this God that, that they have no real interaction with. Maybe, just maybe, he will be merciful to us. Maybe he will show us grace. Now, you can imagine the response of the Jews in Jesus' day when they hear this. The Ninevites were still hated people because later the Ninevites turned back to their sin, lead Israel into captivity originally. And so these people are not good people. So the fact that Jesus uses this example, it was meant to be shocking. It was meant to open their eyes and say, hey, the hardest of people, the worst of people, they turned. They repented at the word of God. And notice, they're not the only ones. If you turn to 1 Kings chapter 10, you see this second story that Jesus brings up. And it's not nearly as familiar to us, uh, but it's one that is, is equally as shocking and equally as, as impactful. Uh, you remember Solomon after David has died. Really, Israel comes into its fullness, right, under Solomon. Uh, he has vast wealth. 
He builds God this great temple. And of course, Solomon himself has this great wisdom that is blessed to him by God. And so people know this. They, they hear these things. And you see there in chapter 10 that this queen of Sheba, the, the queen of the south, she hears all about Solomon, and she wants to, to check it out. And so she brings this caravan of treasures to him, just so that she can get an audience with him, just so that she can see all of his great wealth. And the point that I really want you to see there is in 1 Kings chapter 10, in verses 7 and in verse 9. She has, has been with Solomon. She's worshipped in the temple. She, she has seen all of the great wealth, and this is what she says. I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Then in verse 9, and this is the key here. She's seen the wealth. She, she's seen how great a man Solomon really is, how great of a king he is. But notice what she says in verse 9. Blessed be who? Not Solomon. Not the people of Israel. Not all this stuff. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And here's my point. This, this lady, this queen of the south, again, who, who has no real relationship with the God of Israel until she shows up there to see Solomon. She recognizes in him not just his great wisdom, not just his great wealth, she recognizes in him God Almighty. She recognizes in him that he is who he is and has what he has because the Lord has been kind to him. The Lord has blessed him. She, this Gentile lady, at the sign of Solomon, at his wisdom, at his wealth, sees God. She sees the true God of Israel. Now, what's the point of all of this? This is great, great Old Testament stories. We could preach them for days, and I love them. But what's, what is Jesus trying to drive us at here? Well, it's in verses 31, and then in verse 32. He says that that, that queen of Sheba, that she's going to rise up in judgment. She says that the, he says that the Ninevites... They will rise up in judgment as well and condemn this current generation that, that he is speaking to. Why? Well, it's because they repented. They repented at Jonah. They repented at Solomon. These two great men, but men who paled in comparison to the one who was standing right before these Jews of this day. Jesus is on the scene. He is tabernacling. He is speaking. He is walking. The Son of God is there before them. But their hearts are so hardened that they haven't turned at His Word. His Word that penetrates to the depths of our soul. And if, if you know Jesus, you know the truth of that. That His Word can penetrate to the depths like nothing else. They have seen his signs. They have seen his wonders. They've seen prophecy fulfilled. We don't have time to go back. But in Luke 4, you remember, Jesus gets the scroll of Isaiah, reads it and says, hey, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Promises to, to let, that the blind will see, that the captive will be set free. All of that has happened already in Luke. But it does, it does them no good. 
As Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, 9, they'll hear and not hear. They'll see and not see. It's right before them. He is right before them. And they will not repent. No sign will change that. No sign except for one. Uh, And Jesus is willing to give one last sign. And you see that there in verse 29. And it is that sign of Jonah. And look, we understand what this is, but it's worth just working through very quickly. If you go back to that story of Jonah, what what is the great miracle that occurs there? You could point to the storm. You could point to the plant that springs up and the worm that ultimately eats it right. You could even point, as we already have, to Jonah's preaching. There's a miraculous nature to what he does when he speaks to those people. We have a hard time grasping the vastness of that city and the fact that everybody repented. God was doing a mighty work through that man. But what's, what's, the, what's the miracle that, that we have known since Vacation Bible School that sticks in the crawl of the world when they think about Christianity? What is it? fish, right? It's a great giant fish that eats Jonah and unceremoniously spits him out right on the dry land, right? Now, what connection does that have to Jesus? What, what, what does that have to do with anything? Well, if you turn to, to the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12 and in verse 40, uh, in his recording of this same scene, he, he adds a line that Jesus says there. Um, let's, let's turn back. Matthew chapter 12 And in verse 40, Jesus says to the people, he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, Jesus here, he's pointing them ahead. He's pointing them to the reality of what's to come. He is predicting Without a shadow of a doubt, his death, and he is predicting his resurrection. Death will swallow him. Death itself will swallow him, just as that fish swallowed Jonah. But then, three days later, he will be raised in triumph. Now again, friends, we've said over and over again, Luke has shown us the miracles of Jesus. He has shown us great signs, signs that, that... in their own right, should cause us to believe. But this, this is the sign, right? This is the sign that says to us that everything Jesus has said about himself up until this point, this is the sign that confirms that his sacrifice was acceptable. It was pleasing to God. This is proof positive that Jesus is the Son of God and that death shall no longer conquer over any of us. He was dead and now he's alive. Friends, that's what Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right? You remember he says there, if Jesus is not alive, then how good is our faith? It's useless. It's not good for any of us. Why? Because we're still lost and dead in our sins. But you remember what he says. He says, Jesus is alive. He is alive. And so now, oh death, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your victory? It's been swallowed up. Just as Jesus had been swallowed up in the grave. Just as Jonah had been swallowed by that fish. Death was swallowed up by something way more powerful than it could could imagine. 
swallowed up by God himself, God in the flesh. The question is, as we try to move on from this, the question is, is have we seen the sign? Have we acknowledged it? Has, it? has it affected our hearts? Has it changed our lives in any way? Friends, the truth is, is that many of these Jews of this generation that Jesus is speaking to in our passage, they're going to they're gonna know, they're going to hear that he was resurrected. And guess what? They're not going to believe. They're still going to turn. They're still going to reject him. Now, before we ridicule them too much, let us ask, what have we done with this resurrected Savior? Now, the truth is, is the one that we preach even now, he is this same Jesus. The one who we preach in the gospel is the one who was dead and who is now alive, seated at the Father's right hand. We worship a Savior who is alive. And so the question is, is have we done anything with that truth? Friends, if you're looking for signs, this is it. This is the great sign. There is no other until he returns. And so with the facts in hand, as I can give them to you, with your Bibles open to this passage, knowing that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, let me ask you, have you, like the Ninevites, repented? Have you fallen in sackcloth and ashes, figuratively, if not literally, and fallen before him, crying out for mercy, crying out for grace, knowing that that is the only option before you? Have you, like those Ninevites, like that woman, seen Jesus, seen God in this great sign? Have you turned by faith and looked to him and him alone? Are you now, even now, living in resurrection hope and that's the challenge to those of us who have believed that's the challenge to those of us who say we do have faith okay we we've seen the resurrection we believe it's true and we believe in jesus are we living like we do are we living with the hope of what is to come the reality that that this is not the end the reality that there is eternity that awaits us are we living like this is it like this world and all of its stuff is all that we have Friends, are we living with the resurrection? Are we living with this superior prophet? Are we living in light of this all-sufficient sign? Secondly, we've seen a superior prophet and all-sufficient sign. Secondly, we see a woeful existence. And I know we're running out of time, so we'll try to move through this fairly quickly. But in verses 37 through 52... You see here that he had, he's addressed the skeptics. Now he addresses uh, that group that is antagonistic, and he does it by way of a dinner invitation. 38. Now, we live in a COVID world where hygiene has become something that is far more important than we uh, used to be. Uh, my kids will tell you that you know dinner is ready at my house when Renee says, everybody come wash your hands. Now, that's usually followed with a lot of grumbling, and nobody wants to do it. But we do it, and, and we understand how important hygiene is. And so our, our temptation is to think that, that when we, or maybe, maybe our reaction to Jesus here is similar to the Pharisees because of what we know. What we say, why is Jesus not, not washing up? But we need to notice that the issue here is not one of germs. The issue is not one of, of physical cleanliness. The issue here is a religious issue. 
The, the issue here is one of ceremonial purity. In other words, this Pharisee thinks that by cleaning himself, he is keeping himself from the sinful world, from the defilement of all the things that are going on where? Not in here, but out there. I can keep all of that stuff away. This, this is pretty good, but I can keep all of that away. Now, on the one hand, we need to recognize that that desire is not completely awful. God does want us to, to be separate from the world in some sense, right? We're not supposed to go out and live like this world is all there is. But the, the, the problem is really twofold here. On the one hand, where did he get this law, this law of cleanliness? It's a man-made law. If you know your Jewish history, you know they had a book called the Mishnah that had thousands and thousands of these laws that were supposedly passed down by oral history from Moses. Laws that were just man-made additions to what God has given us here in his word. And so religiously speaking, Jesus is fine. He's, he's not, he has done nothing wrong when he doesn't wash up. But notice that there's a second issue here as well. Not only is this a man-made law, but notice also there's a great issue of hypocrisy. While these men made their laws, they made their outward ceremonies, in actuality, they were failing to do what God had actually told them to do. They were honoring God with their lips, Isaiah says, right? But their hearts were truly far from him. That's the point that Jesus is making there uh, in verse 39. He says, now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but you are full of greed and wickedness. In other words, your hands may be clean, but your souls are filthy. And again, he makes that point over and over again. I'll just list them to you. We won't, we won't try to stop and, and look at each one. But in verse 42, he's talking about they give these, these uh, and I just said we weren't going to do this, and here I am doing it. Uh, they, they give their, their tithes. But they don't give inwardly, right? They don't give justice and peace. They don't do the things that God calls them to do. Verse 43, an issue of pride. Verse 48, the, the prophets that their fathers killed. They kill them too by not doing what the prophets actually said to do. Again, you see all this with the, the lawyers as well. The lawyers, they, they heap up laws and things that the people have to do. And yet they don't keep them either. They don't do the things that they're supposed to do. And so over in chapter 12, this is why I included it. What does Jesus say to them? He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed are hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed from the rooftops. Now look, it's late. It's time to go, and I know that. But if you have stopped listening, listen now. Because what Jesus gives us here is a warning to church people, to people just like me and just like you. People who make their own little laws, who say, you know what, I'm a lot better than those folks out there. At least I'm trying. At least I've done, I hadn't committed the big ones, right? I've come to church. I've given my tithes and offerings. I've helped build the church. I've been an officer in the church. I'm the pastor of the church. Surely, surely these things have got me in a good spot. Surely I'm okay. What's the problem? 
Friends, the reality is, is all of our law-keeping, all of our ritual ceremonies, they can't save us. Not a single one of them can give us any good standing before God. Why? Because as hard as we may try, we will not keep them. Now, I don't have to tell you the truth of that. Look at your own heart. Think about the law. Think about what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. That if you hate your brother, you have committed adultery. All those things that Jesus talks about in chapter 12 that we hide, friends, they are light to Jesus. They are light to God. You may be able to hide them to the person sitting next to the pew in the pew to you. We may clean ourselves up and look really good here on Sunday mornings. But the reality is, is what's going on in here, he, we can't hide it from him. He sees every bit of it. And so the question is, as we try to conclude, the question is, is the question that the people ask in Acts chapter 2, right? Peter has given this great sermon. He says, y'all are sinners. You have done all this in the past. Your fathers were sinners. And they say, what do we do? Friends, that's the question. What do we do? Well, Jesus tells us there in verses 27 and 28. This lady comes to him and says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And we can talk about Mary, but we don't have time to do that right now. But notice how Jesus responds. No, rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, on the one hand, does that contradict everything we just said? We just said all of our law keeping, it can't do anything for us. We just said that we are unable to keep the law. So, so what, do we, what do we do here? Friends, what does the word say? In all of its totality, from beginning to end, what does it say? It says, come to God and repent. Come by faith. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 is all about. All of those people in the Old Testament who, who seemed to get in by works. No, actually, they got in by faith. Come and believe. Because in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born under the law, so that he might die for those who are under the law, so that we might be redeemed and we, we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And again, what is required? Ephesians chapter 2, all that is required is faith. And even that he promises to give to us. Even that he gives there. And so the, the question as we conclude is, 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 are we in the light? Or is our eye affecting our whole body? Is it darkness? Friends, the, the choir, they, they sang it last week as we try to think about these things and what God has given us in his word. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say? Then to you he has said, you to, who, to Jesus for refuge have fled, right? Don't know that line. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make in this story. What more can he say than he has said through the prophet, the, the great prophet, through the priest, and through the king of kings? And so, let me encourage you. Let me invite you today, even, even as God invites you. It's just far greater than me inviting you. He invites every single one of us to come today to lay down our sins, to lay down our works, 
to lay down our pride and to lay it all down at the foot of the cross. Lay it down there and do what the choir sang for us to do. Empty-handed, bringing nothing. Embrace Him. Lean in to Jesus. Friends, He'll keep you standing. He won't ever let you down. And I promise you, He will get you safely to eternity. He is the resurrected one. Lean into Him. Let's pray together. Father, as we conclude now, Lord, we're tired and our minds are ready to be done with this. And yet, Father, you are still at work. Uh, And so we pray that you would change our hearts, uh, change our souls. Lord, help us uh, to look to you, not to ourselves, not to our own good works, not to the works of this world. Help us look to the only one who can truly save us. Lord, we thank you for the great sign of a resurrected Lord who is alive even now, who is at work in the life of his people and his church. Lord, we see the signs of that so clearly. Help us to recognize them. Help us not to overlook them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.